So in Acts chapter 4 is where we find ourselves here today. Last week in Acts chapter 3, we saw Peter and John perform a miracle. And when they performed this miracle, it sent the entire crowd that had gathered together at the temple in Jerusalem, it sent them into this, this astonished celebration, as it would have with anybody, right? There's a huge crowd of people that had gathered together in the afternoon prayer service, going through their usual religious motions. They're all packed into this courtyard area outside, and people are coming and going. But what had happened was, on the way into prayer... Peter and John see this very well-known man who was, the Bible tells us he was lame from birth, meaning he could not walk from the time he was born. And every day, some family or friends would come and set this man at the gate of the temple, and so everyone entering into the temple would see this man sitting there begging, asking for handouts. But what happened this particular day is that when Peter and John came to the temple, When they walked in, instead of just giving this man some alms, some some loose change or whatever, instead, what happens? Peter and John look at the man and say, you know, silver or gold I don't have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And he grabs him by the right hand, lifts him to his feet. Instantly, the man is completely healed. And then what happens? He begins walking, it says, and leaping, jumping up and down and praising God. And so he enters into the temple courtyards where everybody's packed in and going about their, their, their prayers. And he busts up this prayer service by leaping and praising God and running around. At first, people are kind of annoyed because they're here to pray. And then they look up and they're like, that's the guy at the gate. What is going on here? What is happening? And when they realize what's taken place, that there's been this miraculous healing, everybody erupts into celebration. And so what started as just a typical afternoon prayer service ends up in this just explosion of, of worship taking place. All right? That's what we see happen. That's what, that's what took place in all of this. And this man, they recognized him because this man had been there for so long, for all these years. And here he is now, walking and leaping and praising God. And what takes place next is obviously the people are like, how did this happen? Who did this? What's involved in this? And that's when Peter stands up and begins to preach the gospel. And we saw that at the end of last week's message where after this healing takes place, he preaches the gospel to everyone that would hear it. And as we're going to find out here, many become believers that day. Now, you might think that something like that, if that happened, it should just turn into a national holiday. You would think that all the people of Israel, of Jerusalem, they're all gathered together like, this is amazing. God visited us, we saw a miracle, we all were here to, you know, experience it. Let's make this a holiday. Like, we've got to start enjoying, like, reminding ourselves that this happened, right? But not everybody, we're going to see, was actually happy about this miracle. Not everybody was excited that God was at work in the temple. Not everyone was, was really astonished or moving toward God in all of this. The apostles are about to meet some resistance And they're going to have to answer for their motives. All right? And that's what we're going to see here in chapter 4 as we begin with verse 1. Acts chapter 4 verse 1 says, And as they were speaking to the people, that's Peter and John, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. I'm going to explain who those people are. Don't worry about it if you don't know yet. And they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus 
the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. All right, so let's, let's stop right there. Even after an incredible miracle is performed, not everyone will be convinced. And, and I think that's kind of hard for us to get in our minds because we sometimes think if everyone saw miracles, then everyone would become believers. And, and that's one of the big questions that we have as we looked last week and really dug into miracles a little bit. Sometimes we think that. I've actually had conversations with friends who have told me flat out, if I saw a miracle, I still wouldn't believe in God. I, I remember um, several years ago, I was just talking with a, a different mutual friend um, about this experience that happened with me. Several years ago, I was visiting a friend up in Santa Monica, and we were hanging out at this pizza place, and, and we were, it was outdoor, and we were sitting there talking and sharing some pizza, and, and uh, he hadn't been a believer for a long time. He'd been raised in a Christian home. His sister had died of a heroin overdose, and when that took place, it deeply, as you can imagine, impacted him. It was, it was horrible in the way that it impacted him. And um, out of that whole thing, if it's not working, Ellie, don't even worry about it. Out, out of that whole thing, um, he basically said, I'm no longer going to believe in God. I'm no longer going to follow God. I'm just going to back away and say there is no God and live life that way. And as he and I were talking more about it, he, he's like, there's just not enough evidence for God. And we're talking back and forth. And I'm trying to share different things with him and try to dismantle some of the things. Really what it came down for him was, I'm angry at God because he let my sister die. And, and that's what it was. It wasn't that I don't believe in the guy. It's actually that I'm really angry at him. But anyway, as we were sitting there talking about it, I said, so are you telling me that if we're, we're sitting here right now and an angel of God appears and explains to you what happened with your sister, and that she's now maybe with God in heaven, if, if he could explain that to you and say, God is real, you need to follow him, and then zapped back up into heaven, and we both saw that, are you telling me you wouldn't believe in God? He's like, no, I wouldn't believe in God. I'd say something's wrong with our pizza. <laughs> and we both hallucinated this. Or I would tell myself that I just wanted this so bad that I imagined the whole thing. Or, or, and he started coming up with all these excuses. And that is actually the way... That's, that's honest, because that's really the way a lot of people would be. Even if they witness a miracle, even if they see something supernatural that blows their mind, it doesn't mean they're going to believe in God or follow him. And that's what, we're going to, that's what we see here. We sometimes think that if they saw, they would become believers, but it's not true. And the reason is, we're complicated humans. That's just part of being human. We're stubborn at least I am, and some of you probably are too. Uh, and we have our own personal agendas. We have our stuff that we're not going to let go of. And these men that come here greatly annoyed, um, that arrest Peter and John, were the people that were in power. Okay? And that's important. Because these men, they ran the temple and presided over the legal system of Israel. Now, I'm going to give you just a little quick history background on kind of the religious organization of the Jews, all right? And it's important to know as you read through the Bible, because you're going to come across a couple of these names like Sadducees and Pharisees and scribes and elders and priests, and it's hard to t try to make sense of all this, all right? But it's really not that hard. The, the religious organizational structure was called the Sanhedrin, okay? The Sanhedrin. 
And the Sanhedrin was kind of like the Congress and Supreme Court of the Jews, all right, mixed into one. The Sanhedrin included 71 members, 71 members. They were all men. That's the way it worked in this particular uh, setup. And their role was to interpret and pass judgments concerning the Jewish law, all right? Now, that included the high priest. He was actually 71. He was the tiebreaker in case there was a split 50-50 decision. Um, So the high priest, it included the captain of the temple that is listed here, which is really the the captain of the temple guard, and we'll talk a little more about that. The temple guard was kind of like a security system for, for the temple, and he was second in command to the high priest. He wasn't the successor of the high priest, if something happened to the high priest, but he was still kind of second in command of the temple. Um, And then it also included the chief priests, that's different than the high priest, the chief priests, and the elders and the scribes, all right? Those people comprised the 71-member Sanhedrin, all right? And then underneath them were the priests and the Levites, the ones who served underneath that leadership for the day-to-day temple functions, They were the ones that would perform all the sacrifices and take care of all of the utensils and all the things that happened in the temple, okay? But all of those that were part of the Sanhedrin, all 71 of them, came from two parties. Sound familiar? Should, right? Two political parties, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, okay? Now, the Sadducees were wealthy, privileged, aristocratic leaders, of the Sanhedrin. The high priest always came from that line of the, of the Sadducees. They were political realists and they cooperated with the ruling powers to ensure their national survival. Because if you'll remember here, Rome, the Roman Empire, is overseeing all this stuff. But what Rome did is they would travel out and, and take and occupy more and more territory around the world, often what they would do is they would cooperate with a particular uh, political structure that was already in place just to help keep the peace. Because Rome didn't care about what was happening in their occupied territory. They just wanted the tax money. (laughs) So what they would sometimes do, and what they did in Israel, is they went in and they said, okay, Jews, you've got all this complicated religious structure and you're kind of hard to rule over. We're going to leave your kind of organizational structure in place and let you deal with all of the issues about Jewish law and Sabbath and and law keeping and all that. You can keep that, but you're going to be underneath us. And so the Sadducees here, as the, the chief priest, the high priest, they wanted to cooperate with Rome because they would have a certain amount of autonomy. They could do what they wanted to do. Remember what happened with Jesus? When they arrested Jesus, it was actually the temple guard, the security system from the temple that went and arrested Jesus. And they brought him in and brought them to this religious body, this group. And then when they decided, okay, we've got something on him that we want him to die for, what did they have to do? They had to go to Rome and get permission from Pilate. That's how it worked, all right? So um, that's who these Sadducees were. And theologically... Here's a couple key pieces with the Sadducees. They did not believe in life after death. They didn't believe in resurrection from the dead. And they didn't believe in angels or the spiritual world. All right? That's important. They emphasized human freedom and believed that faithfulness to God was rewarded in this life. They were wealthy. They were in charge. And so, therefore, they were right. (laughs) That's how they saw it. 
They're like, well, if you really, if all of you walked with God, you'd be healthy, wealthy, and wise like us. We're rich and we're at the top of the food chain, therefore we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. Otherwise, it wouldn't work this way. Okay? Now, this party dissolved once their stronghold, the temple, was destroyed in 70 AD. There are no Sadducees left today. Okay? Pharisees, let's talk about them. The Pharisees were common people. They weren't part of this aristocratic class. And they were dedicated to the Torah. That's the the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. That's also known as the Hebrew law. And their extensive oral tradition interpreted the law, and they viewed the Torah and their tradition as equals. All right, so that was very important to them. It's like, here's what the Bible says, and here's what people have said about that, the ones that we listen to, the rabbis, and those are equal. So that's, that's how they viewed it. Many of the scribes that we find in the, in the uh, Sanhedrin were Pharisees. Now, theologically, they maintained a balance between God's sovereignty and free will. But, in, unlike the Sadducees, they believed in things like angels and resurrection from the dead and the afterlife and the spiritual world. Okay, so these were kind of like their big differences that these two groups saw. And the Judaism that survived the temple destruction in 70 is essentially the viewpoint and theology of the Pharisees. So when you come across Jews today that are considered themselves Orthodox Jews, they're from this line. And so a lot of the theology is connected to what was the Pharisees of old. All right, and so, so what do we see here? Now, hopefully you have an idea of how that works now. And, and so Peter and John get arrested by this Sanhedrin, Um, but it does tell us here, right before they get arrested, we also find out that thousands of people became believers through this miracle. That's important to note, Uh, but it came with a cost. They got to minister in this way, and people got saved, but there was a real cost. This is the first time that we know of that the apostles had problems with the law, Um, because remember, when Jesus was arrested, what happened to the disciples? They scattered. They're like, we don't want to get hooked into this. Like, we're, we're going away. But now Peter and John find themselves in chains. Now look at verse 5. It says, And on the next day, so they rested him, they hold him overnight in custody. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired... By what power or by what name did you do this? Now, the events of the previous day got the attention of the entire Sanhedrin. And that's important. I want you to understand, this is essentially calling together all of Congress and the Supreme Court together for a hearing. All right, so if you've ever seen on TV, you know, they call in... Zuckerberg from Facebook or something in front of a congressional hearing and say, how are you destroying our world with your social media? And he says, no, we're really great, you know? And, and so, right, and it's in front of Congress and everybody from all the, like, this is a big deal. The entire Sanhedrin is called in. And it's actually really important that you understand who these people in verse 6 are. When it says Annas the high priest, he actually wasn't the current high priest, but Annas was probably the most a powerful political figure in the time of Jesus and the apostles. 
Annas had actually already been removed by the Roman government. Uh, They're like, we don't want you as the high priest anymore. Get somebody else in. So Annas is like, all right, no problem. We'll get some other high priests. The way it ended up, um, Caiaphas, who's also listed as the current high priest, that's Annas' son-in-law. And not only that, five other of Annas' sons would go on to become high priest. All right, he and Annas is calling the shots. He may have not had the official title, but they come to Annas first because he's so influential. In fact, if you read the Gospels and you look at John, um, in John 18, it tells us when they arrested Jesus, they didn't take him to Caiaphas, the high priest, first. They actually took him to Annas first and then said, is it okay for us to take us over to Caiaphas? Like, yeah, all right, let's do it. <laughs> So Annas is a very, very powerful man. So that's basically saying, and they, they called Congress and the Supreme Court and invited the president. All right, so this is a big deal of what's happening here in this, this interview. But the question that they ask was really less of a question and more of an accusation. What are they saying here when they ask you, hey, by what power or name did you do this? What they're saying is, how dare you step into our temple And ignore our authority. This was an authority issue. That's why these guys all came in. That's why they're all upset and annoyed at what's going on. Who do you think you are? And the Sanhedrin is furious to think that these men would walk in and be doing things like this without their permission. We didn't tell you. You didn't get it. You got a permit for that healing? You know? That's what's going on. You need to talk to us before you want to start doing some ministry and preaching? You're standing in the middle of this crowd and preaching? No, no, no. That doesn't happen. Not on our watch. This is our temple, right? All right, look at verse 8. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So what happens here is Peter goes into full-on ministry mode. (laughs) And I use that word on purpose. He begins here by recognizing their authority. Do you notice that's how he starts out? He's like, rulers and elders of the people. I know who I'm standing in front of here today. I know I'm in the Sanhedrin, and I recognize some of your scary faces. (laughs) I know what I'm doing here, but I need to tell you some things. And he immediately clarifies their so-called question. If this is a question about the healing of this man, there's a simple answer. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ of Nazareth in case you're not sure about the Jesus that we're calling Christ. The one of Nazareth, the one you crucified, that one. It's by Jesus Christ. Leave no doubt about it. That is who we're representing. It's the power of Jesus that did this. 
But then to address the question they're really asking, because remember, their question really is, who do you think you are? What, What kind of authority do you have here? What he does here is he answers that by quoting Psalm 118. Here's what Psalm 118, 22 to 23 says. It says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. All right, the Sanhedrin... When, when Peter says he's the cornerstone and you're the builders, they knew exactly what Peter was referring to. We read it without some of that background and we're like, what, cornerstones and builders, what are you talking about? This was a psalm, a prophecy that had happened in scripture that said, one day God is going to do this thing. And from this thing, he's going to build his entire nation based on a cornerstone. And, and for the old construction crew um, understanding there, the way that they would build these buildings is they would start, builders would start with a perfect cornerstone. Because that stone, they were going to line up the rest of the building from that. Okay, and so you had to make sure you had a good one. That was flat, it was level, it was square, it was plumb, the whole thing. So that when you built, lined everything else up off of that, your building would stand. Otherwise, if you started with a faulty cornerstone or was a little off or whatever, your building would go sideways. And so the description here is it says that God is going to do something where he's going to place this perfect cornerstone and he's going to build off of it. And so what Peter is saying to these guys is he says, you guys are the builders. You guys are the ones who are supposed, this is supposed to be your temple, You're the ones that are supposed to be building up the people of Israel, teaching them to worship, teaching them to follow the one true living God. But here's what happened. Just what was said would happen hundreds of years before in this prophecy. That is that you're going to take the cornerstone that God provided and you're going to toss it to the rubbish pile. You're going to ignore it and come up with some other plan and try to build things on your own. But this is the cornerstone. Jesus was the cornerstone and you guys killed him. Okay, do you see the, the, the impact that's happening here in this? So they may have felt angered and annoyed at first, but now this was a threat. This was a direct threat. And remember, these same leaders did not hesitate to murder an innocent man to protect their power and authority. Just kind of a common human trait, unfortunately. And hearing his name, the name of Jesus brought back up, would have been a nightmare. Because the fear of losing control would have been felt by them more than ever. They had hoped that by killing Jesus, it would disperse the whole thing and they wouldn't have to deal with any of this. They'd just go back to business as usual. So now they have a big problem. And look what happens next in verse 13. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, They were astonished. Of course they're astonished. Think about that. You just bringing in somebody off the street to go meet Congress, the Supreme Court, and the President and start arguing against them? Like, who are these guys? Where do they come from? They're nobodies. How is this possible? All right? And it goes on. And it says, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them They had nothing to say in opposition. 
But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And I think this is a little bit interesting. Instead of considering the implications of what they just heard, instead of taking in what Peter had just said to them about tossing out the cornerstone, instead of being like, "Uh uh-oh, have we done something wrong here? Uh Uh-oh, there's power with these guys. They're healing people. Everybody's worshiping God. They're astonished. Uh Uh-oh, have we abused our power? Uh Uh-oh, have we done something wrong? Instead of any of that, they don't go down that path at all. Instead, they try to defend themselves with threats. They knew this was a real problem. And not only were Jesus' followers still around, which they were hoping they would have dispersed, But now, standing here in front of everybody, they've got this man who's been miraculously and undeniably healed. And everybody knew it, including them. It wasn't that they didn't believe this miracle took place. Annas and the rest of his crew are all like, that's the guy. We've seen him here for 40 plus years. We know he's not been able to walk. And now we're looking at him and he's standing and leaping and praising God. No question about that. We can't argue with that. So what are we going to do? We're going to have to threaten them. They can't spin this. And if they had tried to have Peter and John imprisoned or executed, they would have an uprising on their hands. That's what they knew. Not only that, Rome wasn't going to go for it. I think if these leaders already knew, we, they already played their ace when they went to Pilate with Jesus. Now, if they're going to come back with another couple guys and say, oh, yeah, Pilate, we got a couple more for you to execute. Pilate would be like, yeah, we're going to execute somebody, and it's you suckers. (laughs) You're not going to keep bringing me people to execute once a week? Are you kidding? We told you to take care of this, and you told us that by killing him, it would wipe it all away, and you guys would all be in order. This is in order. You're coming back to my governor's mansion and knocking on the door asking for an execution? Uh Uh-uh. Guards, grab these guys. Put them on crosses. So they knew that wasn't an option. So instead, they've got to figure out. They're like, well, if we, if we hold them in captivity any longer, the people, the people that have seen all this, the thousands of people in this court, they're going to rip our houses down. They're going to come get these guys. We're going to have an uprising. And if we have an uprising, then Rome is unhappy, and they're going to come wipe us out, and we'd lose, we lose that way. The only choice we have at this point right now, let's threaten them and let them go and hope it all turns out, hope it all goes away. Here's what we see in verse 19. It says, but Peter and John, so they, they've, uh, they've called them and charged them, said, don't teach in the name of Jesus. And it says in verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Peter and John's response was a hard no. It's just like, no, 
We're not going to do it. They'd rejected the council's command. And it wasn't out of disrespect for their role or authority. It wasn't just like, no, we're anarchists. We're going to do our own thing. We don't care what you government have to say. You know, we're going to go our own way. No, it wasn't that. It was a response to a greater authority. What Peter and John are trying to bring to the front of the Sanhedrin for them to see and understand is, look, guys, you have power. It's God-given power. You might not know it, but you have power. And you have authority. But there's an authority that's higher than you, that's greater than you. No matter how much power and influence you think you have, there's a greater authority, and it's God. And we are answering to that authority And because of that, because of what God has told us to do, we will ignore what it is you're telling us to do. The God Almighty is the one that we're going to obey. And the command that Jesus gave his followers was that we would go and be witnesses of what God has done in the world. And you can't be a witness if you can't speak. And so because of that, they said... No, that's not the way it's going to be. And now, here's, here's what I want you to, to look at here with this. I think this would have been difficult for these men. We read this and we're like, man, yeah, go Peter, go John. You guys are tough. Guys, I still think it would have been really difficult. Really difficult. You got two fishermen from Galilee in front of the ruling body of their nation And they flat out have to refuse what they're commanded. Not only that, a little month, more than a month ago, they saw Jesus crucified for the same thing, essentially. It would have been intimidating. It would have been terrifying. It wasn't easy. I also think, just a side note here, this event is one of the, the strong arguments for the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. Have you thought about that? If Jesus had not risen from the dead, how and why would these men have stood so boldly in front of the Sanhedrin? When Jesus died, they scattered. They weren't the types of guys that were like, oh yeah, we're going to the, I mean, they claimed to be at first. Peter first was like, I'll go to the death with you, Jesus, until things got heavy, right? And then he's like, I'm out of here. (laughs) They would not be these same men standing here. Their hopes had been gone. They had been wiped out. But by witnessing the resurrected Jesus and being filled with his spirit, they became new men and their confidence came from heaven. So how do we, how do we apply this to our lives? When we look at this story, we look at what take, took place here. Um, I think there are a lot of things that we can pull out of this story, but f- for today, I'd like us to focus on this. What was it that motivated these men to be so bold in this hostile environment? What was the motivator behind this ministry? What actually fueled them to do this? And that answer, I think, will help all of us fulfill the call that God has for us in our lives. Because what we find here is the true motivator for ministry. Here's what I think. I I think that most Christians... When they become Christians, they want to minister in some way. When you give your life to the Lord and you understand the gospel message that, hey, I've been saved and I have eternity in heaven with God, most of the time, there's something about that good news 
that gives you hope, gives you encouragement, that makes you want to serve others. And what we find is we start reading the Bible and coming to church and understanding who Jesus was. We start seeing the fact that Jesus was a servant. And Jesus served other people. And Jesus gave examples for his people to be the hands, his hands and feet in the world. And when he calls us in the Great Commission and says, go and make disciples and baptize and do and teach and serve and love, we feel this drive that says, yeah, I, I am a Christian. I should serve. I should reach out. I should do something with what God has done in me. Right? It's a natural, it's a natural feeling most of the time. And even though we, we want to minister, what we find out is it's not always easy. It's not always easy. And many of you are, that are here today, many of you are actively serving now. Keep up the good work. Let me encourage that. Continue to serve. Continue to minister. Continue to reach out. Others of you, maybe you've considered it or you've thought about it, but you maybe haven't quite committed to it yet. You, you see a, a ministry opportunity to help out at church um, on Sundays a couple times a month. Or, or you think about hosting a life group. We were just talking about those this morning. Or starting a Bible study at work. Or maybe it's a ministry opportunity that you see in your neighborhood or your school. Now, it sounds good in theory. And there's a part of you that's like, yeah, I, I should serve. I should help out in some way. I should commit to something. But I know it's going to require some sacrifice. Because anything that takes time is a sacrifice. We sacrifice all the time. We, we make choices all the time with our time. We have a limited amount. And what we do with it, we are, are choosing. And not only that, just like it happened for Peter and John here, if we minister and if we serve, we might meet some resistance. Now, hopefully you won't get called in front of the Supreme Court and Congress to have to, that kind of resistance like they did, but there's, we know that ministry isn't always easy. It's not always fun. It's not always encouraging. But at the same time, we know and have been taught that reaching others is one of the key ingredients to a healthy life of a growing Christian. It's one of the big ones. We just did a series this summer where we talked about these three big areas of our, our Christian walk that are important for the disciples and followers of Jesus. And one of them was that we gather together in worship. Another was that we would connect in community. The third one is that we would reach others. We would minister to other people. It's one of the keys. And, and not only that, it's not just that we do it one time and we fulfilled our duty. Oh, I helped out once. You know, there was a kids ministry event in 1987 and um, I helped out that day. And uh, so it's good. I've, I've hit it. I hit, no, it's, right? It's reaching and ministering something that's got to be built into our lives. It's part of who we are. It's our lifestyle. It goes on and on. But it's not always easy. And so we need the right motivation behind our ministry. <coughs> Excuse me. The miracle that the apostles performed was exciting and encouraging, but it wasn't the miracle that motivated them. All right? That's important. I want you to think about that. You might think, well, I know why Peter and John were ready to, you know, be strong here in front of the rest of these guys. It's simply because they're still riding high on the adrenaline that happened when they saw that guy get healed. Right? Because it would have been exciting 
When Peter walked in and reached down and grabbed that guy and lifted him up, and all of a sudden, boom, he's healed, and he's running around and praising, and everybody gathers around. It's this huge event. Everybody's praising God. You can imagine he'd feel pretty good. And you can imagine he'd be like, yeah, bring it on. I'll tell anybody about Jesus right now. You see this? Right? We'd be feeling that. But what do they actually have to deal with? No, actually, they took him and threw him in jail for the night. One, I don't know about you, but for me, one night on a cold, hard stone in prison would probably pull my adrenaline level down a little bit (laughs) and then get dragged out in front of the Sanhedrin the next morning. It wasn't the miracle at that point that was fueling what they were doing. Sometimes people are motivated to minister in some way because it seems fun or exciting. All right? When we give you a ministry opportunity to do as a church, we try to make it uh, inviting to you. And some of those are a little more inviting to others. Uh, we throw something out here that says, hey, let's go clean up trash at the school. You know? You can't really spend that one too much. It's either, okay, I'm willing to serve or not. Right? But there are other things. Uh, you know, you can get involved in, in helping prepare food or, or spending time with the kids and teaching them or, or loading boxes onto a trailer. Again, that's one of those not-so-fun things, right? Or, or being part of the, the, the music team. There's, there's lots of things that we do that say, hey, come on, it's good. But at the welcome table, what do you have to do? You smile and you say, good morning, people. Like, that's what you got to do. How, how bad is that? We'll give you free coffee. You know, go, go do it, right? There's some of those things that seem easy, and that's all right. Um, sometimes people are motivated to minister because it gives them a sense of involvement. It's like, okay, now I'm connected to the group or belonging or purpose. And all those things are great. They're good side effects of serving, but they won't last as motivators when ministry gets difficult or when it grows stale or when it meets resistance. We need a motivation that lasts. So what is it? What was it that motivated Peter and John? Not just to minister to the man they healed, because that was easy, but to also reach into the Sanhedrin itself. I don't know if you've ever thought about it before, but this conversation before the council was actually ministry. They were actually ministering to the Sanhedrin here. It's not the sort of ministry that we usually picture, The ministry of healing a guy and preaching the gospel, that we can see that as ministry. But what they're doing here, doing the hard ministry, is ministry. Still bringing the light into a dark place, still confronting the lies with truth, it's still ministry, guys. It's ministry. What motivated it? Well, what are common motivators in people's lives? What motivates parents to care for their kids? It's love, right? Think about that. Parents are motivated to take care of their kids. We feed them, we clothe them, we change their diapers. How on earth, what would motivate us to do that? It's love. But I don't think love was the motivator here for these guys. I mean, maybe there was some deep agape love, but let's face it, these are, this is the same people that killed their best friend. I don't think there's a whole lot of love for this group. That's not motivating them. Entrepreneurs, what's their motivation for their business? Profit. Going to work hard and build a business and make money. Independence, profit. Politicians, what's their motive for running for office? It's usually power, maybe influence. Right? But Peter and John, they're not making money from this. That couldn't motivate their ministry. 
power and influence. It's the opposite. They're risking their lives. The motivators for the disciples weren't accolades or influence. It wasn't money or fame. Probably not love. Here's what they're motivated by. They're motivated by the truth that Jesus is the way to salvation. They believed Jesus' promise that they would receive eternal life. And that drove them to invite as many other people as possible to receive the same thing. The apostles were motivated by the gospel. It's just by the gospel. The good news of Jesus. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 9, wrote the very same thing. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant. It's another word for a minister. I'm a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Here's the question. Here's how we finish here today. Are you motivated by the gospel? Does the gospel fuel ministry in your life? If you are, keep doing it. Reach out. Serve. Don't give up. Because the glorious truth of the gospel is still true. We might not all see the results of all that in this life, but trust that God is using you in his plan. And if you're tired or worn out by your ministry, which happens, guys, that happens, remind yourself of the gospel this week. Remind yourself of who you are in Christ. Remind yourself of where you came from, of what God has done and is doing in your life. Be encouraged again, as as it says in Colossians, set your mind on things above. Think about him. Think about your future. Think about the time to come. And spend some time just refilling your soul with the good news. Be refreshed. If you aren't motivated by the gospel, so here's another group of people. If you're not motivated by that, it might just be that it hasn't sunk in deeply enough. All right? You might be a Christian here today, you've heard the gospel, and you're like, I don't like the serving thing. That's not really me. I would much rather, I like to come to church, that's good, like to read the Bible and hear that stuff. I pray, I'm good, but I don't want to do the other stuff. That takes too much, too much time. I'm not really motivated to do that. It doesn't sound fun to me. You tell me you're going to throw me in a room full of third graders? Come on, right? Uh, You may not be motivated, but maybe you just haven't considered enough what it means that you've been saved for eternity. You've been given life. You've been given direction. You've been given grace and healing. Your sins have been forgiven. This is good news, guys. You have hope and a future. You are not destined for death and darkness for eternity, okay? This is good news. Remind yourself of that. Let that gratitude grow into compassion for others who don't share that existence. And let it begin to motivate you to ministry. And finally, the last group is if maybe you don't know the gospel. And if you don't know the gospel, again, I'll just quickly share it with you. Because it's the same message that Peter shared with the council. What did he say? There's one name under heaven by which we must be saved. And that name is Jesus. Jesus Christ. He loves you. He died for you. He rose again. And he is preparing to make all things new for eternity.
and he invites you to follow him forever. That's the good news of the gospel. And when our hearts are captured by Jesus, we begin to become more like him. We're given the mind and the heart and the spirit of Christ. The same gospel that motivated Jesus and the apostles is to motivate us for our lives. We don't just reach out from obligation. We don't, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but when we talk about ministry opportunities, we don't try to do it with guilt. We don't try to say, well, 62% of you have been serving, but the other 38, you know, like, what's your problem? Come on. We don't try to do it that way. That's not what we're, that's not what we're here for. We reach out because we know it's an opportunity. We've responded to the gospel. We understand what that means. And from that, we want to love and serve other people. God can do it all without you or without me. But he chooses to include us. One last passage of scripture as we finish. Philippians 2, 4 to 11. says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. By what power, by what name do you do this? They asked Peter and John. By the name above every other name and by the power of his Holy Spirit. And in the same way, may we be motivated to minister. Pray with me. We thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. And we thank you, Lord, for Jesus. We thank you that we have heard the name above every other name and that we have responded to your invitation to come and to know you. And even though we're not going to see that until all things wrap up and you make all things new. Lord, we believe that that is glory beyond glory. It is so much more than we can imagine. And God, we are indebted to Jesus because there's nothing we could have done. We could not have been just better people or worked harder, tried more to save ourselves. We could not save ourselves, but you were willing to come and save us. And from that, Lord, from that gratitude, from that debt, from that forgiveness, from that mercy, from that grace, Lord, may that take root in us and motivate us for living, motivate us to serve, motivate us to love, motivate us to be the people that you're calling us to be. I know that you have a place for every single person in this church, who is a Christian, every single believer here, you have a place for them to serve, a place for them to minister. For some of those people, it will be within the church. 
For others, it'll be outside of the church. Probably for all of us, it'll be a little mix of both. But wherever you're calling us to minister, Lord, may we respond to that. And may we do it. May we be obedient to minister and to love and do it from full hearts. Full hearts that recognize the gospel message in our lives. And today, Lord, I pray that if there are any that maybe this message is convicting to them. Maybe they know they've heard your voice calling them to serve in some capacity, to help out in some way. Maybe you've been calling them to, to start a ministry at work. Or maybe it's, it's just a matter of sharing the gospel with the next door neighbor that you've put on their heart and they've been slow to do it. They don't know. Maybe they'll resist it. Maybe they'll make fun of me. Maybe they'll call me names. Maybe they won't be my friend anymore. Whatever it is, Lord, whatever you're calling us to, whatever that ministry looks like, God, I pray that you would give us the courage and the boldness that comes from being motivated by the good news of the gospel. And may we be your people that are going out into this world around us, bringing the light and life of Jesus wherever we go. Open those doors for us. Motivate us, Lord. Guide us. And may we bring you glory and honor. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.